Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Macro Views. Your host, Andrew Smith, coming to you live from downtown LA. It's a nice breezy night out here, so uh, I got the windows open. You may hear some cars roll by or the uh, occasional siren or homeless dude hopping off off the bus and uh, causing a ruckus. It's part of everyday life. So tonight's episode, we're going to be discussing access to capital and why it is that entrepreneurs are having such a tough time uh, gaining access to capital. Uh, As many of my listeners will know, and and maybe some of you won't, you know, it is said that uh, 50% of every good idea coming to life is is capital. You got to have money behind your ideas to be able to make them uh, come true. And that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. So let's uh, let's dig right into it. In the slideshow, I've got, uh, I believe I've got about 16 slides in the slideshow tonight. It's kind of a big slideshow. And, you know, first thing we'll do is kind of just walk through them and I'll explain a little bit about why I wanted to see it, uh, why I wanted all of you to, uh, to see these charts. So the first chart, I, I, I admittedly should have probably cut back the years a little bit, just shown kind of from 1960 forward. But the first chart shows the uh, percentage change in the number of pages in Federal uh, Register, uh, and this is excluding blanks and skips. So these are actually pages with words on them. Uh, And this is compared to the percentage growth of uh, real private investment, excluding residential housing investment. And basically what you see is that a decline in regulations is typically uh, associated with an increase in investment and a um, increase in regulations is typically uh, preceded by a decrease in investment. We've got to have investment in order to have jobs and in order to be able to grow the economy. And, you know, what we don't have right now is a lot of investment. We've got a lot of cash sitting on the sidelines, both at big companies and then, you know, just generally wealthy people, uh, you know, stashing a lot of their money, you know, and, and when they do put their money to work, they're putting it to work in, you know, the least risky place to try to earn a return. So you see a lot of overvaluation in utilities and consumer staples, uh, you know, cause you've had capital just flood towards kind of those safety plays. And a lot of the reason for that is just a lack of certainty. Uh, we don't really know what's going to come about. We don't know the regulations. We don't know what's going to get implemented. Um, you know, recently over the past, you know, seven, eight, ten years, you've had a number of regulations that have been passed signed into law, and then for one reason or another, typically because, you know, companies start to kind of uh, say, look, this isn't going to really work out. You're going to have to give us time to adjust. Uh, What ends up happening is that these uh, huge regulatory bills pass, but then don't get actually implemented for like five, seven, ten years. And we're seeing this with Dodd-Frank. We saw it with Obamacare, the ACA, which is almost fully rolled out now. Um, but, you know, in the last episode, we talked a lot about regulations and the regulatory cost and what, how it makes it so expensive. Tonight, when we uh, talk about regulations, what we're going to talk about is some of the barriers to entry and how it increased the costs of uh, investors and uh, increases the amount of capital needed for entrepreneurs to, in order to be able to get the job done. So the first chart just kind of shows, um, you know, this isn't a one-for-one correlation, but you know, public policy correlation with the, the economy, typically you see about it. 12 month lag. And, um, a lot of times you see a lot of these big regulations pass post, uh, you know, post a, a decline in, uh, in markets and a decline in investment that, that precedes that. So what, what you tend to see here is a lot of regulations that occur afterwards during the bounce. And then a couple years later, as those regulations actually get implemented, the economy starts to, uh, kind of 
dive a little bit, or at least investment starts to dive, which is typically a good sign that the economy is not going to uh, be as strong for much longer. And we're starting to see a little bit of a dip in investment, you know, kind of hit, hit its peak um, right around 2012 and, you know, declined in 2013. Then we got a little bit of a bounce in 2014 and 2015 definitely declined. We'll have to see uh, what 2016 holds in stock when some of these numbers come out. Uh, but if the trend continues, it's it's heading into a dangerous place because we're actually right now we still have growth, but the the rate of growth is is uh, we have we have a growth in real investment, but the rate of growth is declining. Uh, right now, you know when it peaked out in about 2012, uh, you had about nine percent growth in uh, investment. Right now, you're getting about two percent growth. So, next slide uh, shows the <clears throat> new regulatory actions in the spring of 2014 and the fall of 2013. And these are under the what are called, quote unquote, unified agendas, which is um, the regulatory agencies getting together and saying, okay, what can we, how can we work together uh, to try to, quote unquote, solve this problem? Um, the third slide shows uh, the Federal Register pages pre and post shutdown and uh, this is a number of increases in uh, number of pages that increase in the federal federal register. And as you can see during the, sh the shutdown on this slide, you have two black lines, and, and in between that, that's the shutdown. Other than a little spike that kind of brought it right back up to the normal rate of increase in the number of federal uh, register pages, you basically hit rock bottom, almost at you know close to zero uh, for about a month there. Um, and about 12 months later, you actually saw an increase in uh, the rate of growth in the economy. Uh, <clears throat> the effect of the shutdown on proposed and final rules. So as you can see, you know, significant documents and final rules basically you know, weak into the shutdown stopped existing. And uh, proposed rules, you had a little bit of, uh, you know, you had some proposed rules be brought forward. But for the most part, proposed rules uh, after the first week of the shutdown also declined. So just not having these bureaucrats in office actually helps out with the number of regulations being written and the number of pages being added to the federal register. The, the following slide is uh, review counts and we'll kind of just skip over that. Some of these kind of just go together and they show, you know, what, what's first and what's next. You may hear again, occasional car driving by maybe playing some music. Uh, the slide after that, and this is slide number six, uh, shows the number of significant rules published by presidential year. So you get to see that this isn't just actually, and actually Obama has uh, fewer uh, in the second half. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that you have a Republican Congress and when a Republican Congress has a Democrat uh, president in office, they typically you know, hold out. But as soon as they get a Republican in office, they increase the number of regulations uh, just like they did from uh, 2001 to 2008. Uh, so this isn't this isn't something that's one party or the other. Both parties are equally guilty for increasing the number of uh, you know, rules and regulations that are imposed. And then we get into the part that uh, this episode's really about. And what we're looking at here are the uh, net new business uh, births versus deaths. So it's basically births minus deaths, and 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 that you know the um, the sum of that. So and. Obviously, as you would expect, you know, a lot of businesses, a lot more businesses going out of business than being created uh, from you know, late 2007 through 2008 and even into early 2010. And then um, in, in uh, basically early 2011, you started to kind of peak back up again. And 
then the next slide shows, again, births and deaths, and it shows the cumulative amount dating back to 1993. Um, and what, what you'll see is, you know, we have, you have basically straight up, and it's been a little bit more choppy, and the rate of growth has been a little bit slower in regards to cumulative uh, births. Uh, new businesses starting. So you've got fewer and fewer businesses starting, or, or at least you know, starting at a slower pace. Uh, the next slide shows that employment gains and losses from private sector births and deaths. Then you have employment gains and losses from private sector uh, business births and deaths and cumulative employment gains and losses. And what you can see is really starting in, um, starting in the early uh, part of the, the new millennium, you know, growth really started to slow has been much more sluggish than it was throughout the 90s. Um, you know, a lot of that obviously has to do with the bursting of the tech bubble and uh, venture capitalists becoming a lot more cautious. And then the, the next slide, um, this is slide number 11, has the number of jobs created by an establishment less than one year old. An establishment less than one year old. This peaked in uh, at the heart of the, the tech bubble and uh, about 1999 and then has declined uh, since you know, since then down to 2010, it used to be peaked out at about uh, 4.75 million new jobs uh, created by establishments less than a year old, and then you know in 2010 bottomed out, and you you started to see growth a little bit as well since then. Um, but basically, the entire uh, first decade of the new millennium, you just had sharp declines in these numbers. Um, you know, went from 4.75 million down to about 2.5 million per year and that's net uh, number of jobs created by an establishment less than one year old slide number 12 shows the percentage of private sector jobs based on the uh, the size of the firm so firms with uh one to uh, 240 uh nine employees that is the blue line and as you can see the percentage of private sector jobs has been declining for firms that are small while at the same time has been dramatically increasing for firms that are large, it's you know basically just totally diverging. And back in the early '90s, we actually had the opposite, and since then, just continued to grow in, in in favor of big business. And this is the slide that I am going to spend a little bit of time on tonight. When we after we finish wrapping up, I'm going to draw everybody's attention to this particular slide. And this is slide number 13, and what it shows is the survival rate of businesses by years after starting. I think this is really important because there's a lot of myths that are preached surrounding this particular point and how risky it is to invest in a startup business and invest in a new business or a small business or a business that's less than well-established and large and growing. And uh, we're going to talk deeply about some of those numbers and what some of those numbers mean and why people should take a little bit more risk in their lives and invest in some small businesses and why it shouldn't be illegal for people who aren't considered accredited investors and already wealthy why it should not be illegal for them to make those investments. Um, so we're, we're also going to, in the last couple of slides, and we'll get to those uh, later tonight in the show, we're also going to talk a little bit about um, you know, ways that we can boost uh, small business investment and, and really get the economy bumping again. So what we really need is we need entrepreneurs to be able to gain access to capital, put that capital to work, making their ideas come to life. Putting that capital to work means hiring people, it means paying a lease somewhere. It means buying a new, new computers. It means buying furniture. It means traveling. It means marketing, which supports you know, a marketing firm. It means new jobs. And it means economic growth. It means more consumption. It means more trade. 
and it means competition, which competition holds companies accountable. And if you go back and listen to our last episode, we made a very good case about how regulators are actually anti-regulation because competition is the ultimate regulator. And by being anti-disruption and anti-competition, regulators actually prevent the market from regulating itself better than they are otherwise able to. You should go back and listen to that episode because we, I, I feel as though we made a very uh, clear, compelling case. But to the access to capital point, let's talk a little bit about that. If you're an entrepreneur, you don't necessarily come from a wealthy family. You didn't grow up on, in a wealthy neighborhood. You can't go next door. You don't got a bunch of quote-unquote credit investors rolling around your neighborhood. And you don't have a bunch of attorneys rolling around your neighborhood that makes it easy for you to structure deals in a very simple way, um, and which, which would in, in turn attract people that would want to invest. How do you find capital? You know, it used to be back in the day, you have what were called merchant banks. And merchant banks essentially served as both lender and consultant. I mean, they, they, they almost became shareholders, but, but guiding shareholders, almost active shareholders, where they guided business. Look, you have this good idea. You have some, you know, you know a little bit about it. You know, we're going to assign a, a uh, you know, one of, one of our bankers to your case. We're going to lend you this money. We're going to set up a financial plan. And you're going to go forward with your business. And you're going to be able to gather the finances. Some of it's going to be, you know, we'll help find equity investors. Maybe we'll structure some bonds. We'll be able to go out and broker the sale of those bonds, be able to raise the money for you. And we're going to guide you in how to make your business more successful because we personally have a stake in it as the bank that's making these loans. Banks don't do that anymore. I'm not even sure if it's legal to do that anymore. I mean, I guess as a direct lender uh, or a private equity firm, it's probably just a lot easier to do it that way. So anybody who wanted to be in that business has really gone the private equity route. And then what happened? What happened was you had, it became, you basically had a venture capital market that became so in love with and so attracted to tech deals that it's become a feasting ground for what I like to call unproductive technology. I mean, you have a lot of games and a lot of apps that don't really do a lot, of, a lot for productivity. Don't get me wrong. You have a lot that are. You have a lot of tech, uh, you know, software as a service and different forms of technology that are coming out that are increasing the efficiency of businesses and making them more productive. But you also have a lot of businesses being funded that are just quick flips, essentially. If you're in the real estate market, it would just be a fix and flip. You're going to put some money into it. You're going to market it. You're going to get a lot of downloads. You're going to have a X, you know, 100 bucks per average monthly user rate that you're going to get for it when you flip it and sell it in a couple of years. And a lot of VCs have become attracted to that. And beyond that, really the primary focus of venture capital now, and even angel investors next level down, is just technology. It's just technology. You, you know, it's either technology or in some cases things like uh, renewable energy, which is kind of a tech play as well, or uh, things like biotech or, or, or really big health innovations, you know, pharmaceuticals and Again, that, that plays into technology and science, and I get that, and I appreciate that, and I think that it's changing the world. But there's a lot, of, uh, a lot of business models and a lot of industries that America can compete in and can have a lot of, uh, a lot of really good, high-quality, high-paying jobs in that are being neglected by early-stage investors. And not only are they being neglected by early-stage investors, but I, I can kind of understand why because they've been overregulated from, you know, from a standpoint of pro professional practices and, and professional standards and the barriers to entry for a lot of these, these, these industries are very high. And you're talking about ranging from 200 K, 
you know, up to over a million dollars. And somebody might be thinking, look, you know, I could probably do this. I got a lot of experience. I've been doing it for five, seven, 10 years. Um, you know, I don't really like my boss. I don't like working for him. I could, you know, I could struggle for, for a year. I got some good savings, but I don't have enough to really start it. I would have to put my house up, um, you know, I'd have to, I'd, I, in order to get the loan, you know, there's, there's no such thing as unsecured startup loans that, that just trust the business owner to not want to fail, um, which is the case. Business owners don't want to fail. Uh, there's been a lot, and maybe this was the case at some point, and, and I'm sure that there's models that factor in, uh, you know, extreme left tail events, which means, you know, events like 08, um, you know, three standard deviation or more uh, market moves. And, you know, in situations like that, yeah, I'm sure you're going to get a lot of small businesses going out of business, and you're you're taking some risk there. But throughout the last 22 years or so, um, as you can see from slide number 13, you know, three to five years in, you know, five years in really still half, a little over half of the businesses are still alive, right? They're still surviving. Now that doesn't necessarily mean they've grown or provided a profit to their shareholders and maybe you can get diluted. And, and yes, there's all those risks involved. That's why it's important if you do make one of those investors to be a good shareholder and to hold uh, your managers accountable, you know, become an owner of the business, be an owner of the business and, uh, you know, try to understand what's going on with the business and, 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 you know, don't intrude. Obviously entrepreneurs don't like investors that are all up in their business and, and, and are trying to prevent them or spin them or, or show them how to do it their way. Some entrepreneurs do need that. Some entrepreneurs need the guidance and appreciate that. Uh, and there might be some points that are weak that you can point out and they'll appreciate that. But, you know, for the most part, let the vision be played out. And, you know, five years later, five years later, five out of 10 of the businesses that you've invested in are at least still alive, which means you at least have a chance to recover your money. Um, and if you structure it properly where you get paid out a coupon early on, you know, you're, you're probably pretty close to getting paid back if you're charging an interest rate that's commensurate with the risk. So, you know, you're probably about a year away from getting paid back on that. And if you just guide it through that process, uh, now you're paid back and everything's upside. Uh, and that's going to happen with 50% of those businesses, according you know, to the statistics of the survival rate. So is, is it, you know, the, the cliche is, you know, one in, one in uh, you know, two out of every three businesses is bankrupt after three years uh, or, you know, nine out of every 10 I've even heard uh, go out of business after three years. That's just not true. I mean, it's just not true. So, um, you know, debunk that myth. I mean, look, if you're somebody who would like to take this risk, you got to understand it's a risk. You got to understand that it's a risk. And, and there is a possibility of losing money. And you should try to diversify. If you're going to have a portfolio of small, you know, small businesses that you invest in, you know, try to, uh, try to diver diversify. Instead of just investing in one or two and, and hoping to hit it big, and then getting upset when you lose money on both of those, you'll have 10. If you make you know, a decent investment in 10 different small businesses, you're, you're decently diversified. It's not great, but in you know, something like that, you want, you want your money to go, go to work for you. Um, and it should be maybe a small part of your portfolio if you're going to do that. But if a lot more people understood that it's not that risky, that in, you know, business owners who are looking for capital – and taking on the risk of, some, of, of accepting somebody else's money and taking on that responsibility, they want that business to survive. They want it to survive as much as the investor does. 
So why are we not seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of flow of capital? A big part is that the banks aren't lending anymore. And, you know, why, why are banks not lending anymore? Why are banks not lending anymore? Um, you know, I don't know if it was just maybe they never did. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty young, but I'm sure back in the, the uh, 70s and 80s, they're chopping at the bit to make loans when you had things like uh, 16, 17, 18% interest rates that were declining. Uh, they're able to securitize that and kind of sell it off. So banks did kind of lend, especially for uh, uh, housing, and, and housing has kind of always been the favored son of the government. There's all sorts of guarantees built in. So naturally, you're going to have a big chunk of the bank's capital go to loans that are heavily insured, if not fully insured, uh, by the full faith and credit of the United States government. And then they're going to have a smaller pool of loans where they take more risky bets, like small businesses. The reason being is that, you know, it's guaranteed. So the opportunity cost is such that you're definitely going to clip a coupon and it's probably not going to go, go bust and you're able to securitize it and sell it really easily and give it a triple A grade. Now we got into trouble because we were doing that with pools of subprime mortgages and, you know, that's kind of been corrected and that was an easy thing to correct. The banks kind of corrected that themselves because they didn't want to go bankrupt again. Um, but we've then also layered on top whole levels of uh, you know, bureaucratic di- dictatorial uh, standards of how to make loans, where to make loans, when to make loans. So that makes it even more costly to make loans to small businesses, makes it more risky to make loans to small businesses. So, and then you have SBA. So the businesses that are getting small business loans, they're getting it within the guidelines of how the banks can be insured on that loan and not take a lot of risk they're making an insured bet. So that's basically why you have banks only lending to either certain industries um, or, or really having really, really strict standards for lending businesses and not really looking at it as, hey, you know, is this business going to be able to pay back this loan? If there's a high likelihood of this business being able to pay back its loan, then we'll make the loan. We'll make the loan. And you got to look at the full plan. You know, you got to look at the full plan. Is, is the business going to use some of the capital to just collateralize itself? And, uh, you know, in case something comes up or in case an opportunity comes up to be able to take advantage of that opportunity, there's a number of different ways businesses can use capital and be able to even potentially protect some of the loan with a piece of the capital that they borrow. Um, and there's all sorts of creative ways to finance. And biz- banks should be in the business of helping small businesses do that. That should be something that banks are, are doing. They're not going to because it's very easy to make insured loans, package it up, and sell it off. That's a really easy thing for a bank to do, and they're not taking a lot of risk, and in some cases, taking no risk doing it. So banks aren't lending. Where do entrepreneurs get their capital? Well, entrepreneurs have to get their capital from a wealthy person. How does an entrepreneur get their capital? And, and, well, let me take a step back there. Why is it only a wealthy person that they have to go to? Well, we have what are called accredited investor laws. And um, under, under Obama, this has changed a little bit under the Jobs Act. They quasi opened up these accredited investor laws. But if you talk to anybody in the uh, you know, financial services legal profession, what they'll tell you is that it, it doesn't really do much unless the company's value is about, you know, 50 million or so, um, you know, I'm backed up and verified by, you know, other venture investors and you have to do it in a really expensive way. 
the only thing it really does is it kind of exempts you from what are called blue sky laws where, or it gives you, you know, blue sky laws where you register with one with the SEC for, for it. And you can kind of offer everywhere. It's not a public offering. It's kind of a quasi public offering. Um, and uh, non-accredited investors can invest, but only up to a certain amount. And there's kind of a lot of rules built around that. And what is an accredited investor? An accredited investor is essentially a wealthy person. It's a person that makes over a certain amount of money every year or has over a um, certain net worth. And they kind of change over time, but but not very much. And if you go to FINRA, you could probably just Google FINRA accredited investor. They have a little infographic that kind of shows you. I believe I posted it on my Twitter quite recently. So it should be there on my Twitter feed. I'll probably try to find it a little bit later and retweet it. But basically you have to be wealthy to make an investment into a small business or, or what's, you know, into a small business through what's called a private placement or a private placement of securities, as opposed to a public placement of securities where it's listed on exchange and, um, you know, registered broker dealers kind of go around and do, you know, a, a what's called a uh, road show and get, you know, they get pension funds and, and, you know, all sorts of uh, professional asset management, uh, groups to buy into the IPO and they raise the money. Um, and, and in this case, basically how it works is you, you kind of set it up and you got to do the work yourself. You can't enlist brokers. You can pay commissions on it. Um, but I believe the rules are that if you're not an accredited investor, it can only be up to like $5,000 or 5% of your net income or something along those lines. But there's basically restrictions involved if you're not an accredited investor under these guidelines of the Jobs Act that kind of open up smaller businesses to broader markets of capital. Um, but, but they don't really go that far. And, and, and the idea behind this was kind of the equity crowdfunding and trying to get equity crowdfunding to be a little bit uh, more popular and uh, kind of sprung out of the Oculus Rift uh, situation. What happened with Oculus Rift is they raid, raised a couple million bucks. Um, you know, they sent people kind of their first model product as you know, sort of a beta product you know, reviews weren't great. Uh, these people paid 200 bucks and, and, you know, each and kind of more and donated it. And, uh, they got rewards in return, but they didn't get any equity. And not too long after Facebook came and bought them for, I believe it was $2 billion. I believe was the number that Facebook bought Oculus Rift for. And the people who donated to Kickstarter, who started this, helped start this company, provide the capital to start this company and get it to a point where Facebook was willing to buy it for $2 billion. Uh, they didn't get anything in return other than what they had already received for the rewards. And they kind of signed up for it, you know, buyer beware. Um, but gee, you know, all those people that donated all that money to this brand new startup company um, who they just thought, Hey, this is a good idea. It's probably going to be worth a lot of money pretty soon. They made a good investment decision, even though they got no return in it, it was kind of charitable. But they made a good investment decision. So this notion that if you're not an accredited investor or a wealthy person, you, you, you don't know enough to make good investment decisions. But, you know, when it comes to venture capital and startup and new ideas, I mean, that's a little bit foolish. I mean, people know good ideas when they see them. You know, I have a, one of my best friends who's a chef. And he told me like a couple days before that Pokemon Go came out, he's like, man, that Pokemon Go is going to be a big deal. You know, someone who buys Nintendo stock right now is probably going to do pretty good. People see good ideas. Let them, you know, people aren't dumb. They're able to see what's going on in the world around them. And, you know, if they see a, a, a trend happening or if they see a new piece of technology that they think is really cool and they want to invest in it 
and they think that they can get a return out of it, let people take that risk with their own money. Shit, you're allowed to buy fucking lottery tickets if you're poor. You're allowed to go to the casino and you know throw money on a craps table if you're poor. But you're not, you know, if you're just an average person, you know, who's working, you can do either of those things. But you can't invest in a small business, or, or you know, I mean, I guess technically you can. You probably wouldn't get arrested for it, but the entrepreneur could. You know, I get it. You know, some of these laws were kind of put in place because later stage investors diluted the early stage investors and didn't want to get sued for it. But look, there's a lot more information out there available today. You know, and and I, I mean, the level of legal uh, advice and the number of lawyers that are out there that are willing to give it. I mean, the cost of legal advice regarding, you know, private placement equity offerings, you know, the cost of that's come way down. It might cost five or six thousand dollars to really put a quality equity offering together for a startup or, or very small business that's, you know, whether it's pre-revenue or is just started clipping some revenue or whatever the case may be in whatever industry it is. And there should be a robust market for that. And, you know, if there's not a robust market for it at first, what we should do is we should incentivize it the same way that we incentivize charitable work. So everybody thinks it's so dangerous. You're just going to lose all your money. Well, then, you know, what? it's really important also. And we've got to find a way to deliver capital to the entrepreneurs that are good managers, that have good ideas. They're going to put that capital to work and get this economy bumping. We got to find a way and we're going to, we're going to need, you know, entrepreneurs to do it, but we're also going to need the regulations in regards to offering you know, equity and debt, when you're an early stage or startup business, we're going to need those regulations to be peeled back completely and just make it fully legal through certain outlets. Markets, look, market technology is, is widely available. Um, it wouldn't take that long. It wouldn't be that hard. You'd have competition. You'd have different standards for different exchanges. Um, you know, you probably have rules in regards to how often you can offer liquidity and things like that. And it would be a robust market. And then you know what we can do if, if people aren't just buying into it right then? We can offer a tax incentive the, the same way we do charity. If we really feel as though it's that risky, it's that bad, look, these are business owners that are trying to hire people, they're putting money to work. We can offer a tax incentive to get that capital flowing to them. And what we do is if you, if you invest in a small business, you know, we, can, we need to narrowly define small business, Okay. We need to narrowly define small businesses. Uh, I get it. Technically, in the scheme of things, a $50 million market cap is a very small business. It is in the scheme of public markets. But what I'm talking about and the companies that should be eligible for when they offer up equity capital, attaching and slapping a tax deduction and, and you know, attached to it, and uh, you know, should probably only be for minority stakes so you don't have wealthy people just taking advantage. And it should probably be done in a way to where you got to have one degree of separation, um, meaning it can't just be your first cousin. Second cousin, you know, I mean, yeah, there's some people that have really close second cousins that, but, you know, grew up together and stuff. But, you know, I'm talking about, you know, you're not going to just give money to your grandkid for, to start a business to um, uh, get a tax, tax incentive out of it. Um, but there will be ways where this you know, capital can be put to work very easily and, uh, and, and, and be done in a tax-efficient manner and offer people an incentive, a tax incentive to do it, be able to reduce their tax base or, or their income base. Um, and you could possibly even do for pre-revenue businesses, make it a, ta- a, a, a actual uh, tax credit versus for small businesses that are post-revenue, make it a um, 
tax deduction where you actually deduct the amount that you invest against your income. In the first case, you actually get the dollar amount that you invest in the, in the startup business, the pure startup pre-revenue, the dollar amount that you invest deducted against the actual dollar amount that, that your taxes come in. The reason for that is that, look, that little bit of capital can flower into something that creates a much larger tax base, tax base. And when you invest in a company, you get taxed at least three times on it. So let's walk, walk through the taxes that you get taxed on as an investor in a small business. Now, let's assume that it's set up as a corporation, and we'll go through partnership and LLC. But let's assume that it's set up as a corporation. You put the money in, and this is not including any sales tax or, or anything like that that you're paying on a, on a state level when you're buying things or whatever the case is. I'm just talking about pure, you know, the, the main taxes. You put your money into a business. It starts making revenue. It, 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 it squeaks out a profit. You get taxed on that. You get taxed on that profit in the corporate structure. Then say that you're making a lot of profit as a business and you get paid a dividend. You get taxed on that as an individual. Then say that the company does really, really well and goes public or gets acquired. You get taxed on that as capital gains. That's three taxes, not to mention that in order to put that money to work, you likely sold another investment that you made a profit off of. Maybe you didn't, maybe you made a loss and reallocated that capital, but say that you made a profit on that cap on the capital that you put to work in the new business opportunity, you got taxed on that as capital gains. So by putting this money, by giving this incentive to take this capital and put it to, to work in a tree plant, you know, water the seed that an entrepreneur has planted, water the seed, let that tree grow from a political standpoint and, and from a government standpoint, that's going to lead to a much larger tax base in the future. You're going to create new jobs. You're going to have a new business that's going to pay taxes. Hopefully, eventually, it grows to the size where it pays dividends. Hopefully, it grows to the size where it goes public or gets acquired, and you're collecting capital gains on it. And as it continues to grow and, and, and people come in at one point as an investor and then kind of exit at, at a later point when they make a profit, you collect more cap, capital gains on that. So if you're a government person, yeah, this would be a perfect solution for you. Give wealthy people a tax incentive to invest in small businesses and startups for entrepreneurs that are mostly non-wealthy people. You know, non-wealthy people with good ideas that, that want to start a business, that need capital, put that capital to work. You get a tax deduction if it's a small business that's post-revenue. You get a tax credit if it's a startup business that's pre-revenue. Money's going to flow. Jobs are going to be created. The economy's going to boom. And you're going to have a lot more competition, which is going to hold companies accountable. And this can be done very easily with the technology we have today. And, it, and, and those companies and, and that equity and the operating agreement and, 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 the, and the securities and subs subscription agreements, they can be very well documented. It can be very easy to tell if there's anything going on. You, hell, you could even force these businesses, if they want to gain access to this market, you know, force them to plug their bank account into a secured area uh, you know, where it's somewhat like a QuickBooks where investors can get on-demand reports about what's going on at the business. That's something you could do. And most business, early stage businesses, you know, if, if, if they need a million bucks in capital or two million bucks in capital, they're going to be able to get it at a good price. And that's a way that they can reduce the risk so that they can get it at a good price. And so that they're going to be able to actually even raise that money. Hell, most businesses will do that. I would do that. I'd make it very easy to be accountable and transparent. 
And I, I think the technology would be able to make that happen very, very quickly. Look at things like peer-to-peer lending. You know, it's basically securitized personal loans that one person makes to another. Now it's kind of underwritten by a bank, and they've got a whole process behind it. But originally, the idea was, was kind of skipping the uh, bureaucratic process that goes on behind the scenes of a CD that costs interest and just deciding which loans you're going to make and kind of having the uh, underwriting of a bank. Now there's risk involved, which there's not with the CD. You get FDIC. That's why you get a lower rate. But, you know, in a yield starved world for some people, uh, it was a really good option to start investing in these peer to peer loans. And we'll see how it ends up working out over the next five to 10 years, but being able to kind of cut out the middleman and get capital right into the hands of people that need it. I think that that's a very interesting innovation and the ability to document those loans. And I know that there was a scandal recently with, uh, with lending club, but for the most part, you're able to document that stuff very, very, very well. You know, it's not that hard with modern day technology to have a really strong and secure database to be able to document these securities very well and make sure that they're not getting lost or being overly diluted um, and you can have rules surrounding small businesses in regards to how often lo- the liquidity can be offered by the investors. Maybe they do have to hold it for six months. So you don't just get a plummet in the price, you know, a little bit after it's, uh, it goes up, you know, on the market, you know, and, and, and you have a plug in to where uh, you're able to, if you're an investor, get a quick and easy report on what's going on behind the scenes of that business and where that capital is actually being used. All that's possible with today's technology. All that's possible with today's technology. And we're operating in a, in a financial services world that is, is based on 1940s laws and 1933 laws. You know, the entire infrastructure, the legal infrastructure, regulatory infrastructure, up and until basically Dodd-Frank, and you've had tweaks here and there. You had Glass-Steagall, um, you know, and then it got repealed. And uh, you kind of had the merger of, of lending banks and investment banks or commercial banks and investment banks. You had kind of the merger and consolidation amongst that after the re- repeal of Glass-Steagall, which set up a uh, firewall. And then the Volcker, Volcker rule kind of did that and moved closer towards that. And that was part of Dodd-Frank. And, um, you know, frankly, I, I think disclosure is the most important part of that. And, it, you know, yes, because we have an insured financial system when it comes to just everyday consumer deposits, um, you know, it's very hard to have that moral hazard of, of allowing prop trading desks that can take almost unlimited leverage with uh, individual depositors that have financial uh, insurance for their deposits because those prop traders kind of know in the back of their minds, hey, you know, we're not really losing anybody's money. So, you know, as long as you have that moral hazard, it's very hard to have a commercial banking system that's merged with an investment banking system because you basically have you know, customer deposits that are insured being put up as collateral to trade risky assets and to do it via risky strategies. If it was fully disclosed and people knew the risks that they were taking with their deposits and there wasn't insurance, which if there wasn't insurance, banks wouldn't really take that risk because nobody would let their, their money be take, have that kind of risk taken with it, with their savings and with their checking account that they used to buy you know, food every day. It just wouldn't happen. Um, but if you had a system like that, you know, then, you know, you wouldn't really necessarily need the separation. The system that we do have with the insurance, you do need the separation. So, um, you know, it's, 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 an, it's an interesting framework that we have because the way that, uh, the way that businesses gain access to capital today 
is really based on a world that was way before the current information. And I know in, in the 80s, you know, things got a little bit stricter in the 80s and the 90s uh, because you had, um, you know, the uh, pink slip pushers or the, the, the pink sheets pushers and the, uh, the penny stock brokers that were kind of running rampant and, you know, your, your wolves of Wall Street type uh, characters that were ripping off old ladies and uh, selling them a bunch of junk. And that's not what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating is having a legitimate market that has really strong accountability built into the, the technological infrastructure of it. You have a fast registration process. You have standardized types of offerings. You have auction, uh, you know, auctions that are available. And uh, you, you, you farm that exchange API out to every brokerage firm. And you hold brokerage firms accountable. Um, for, for, for keeping documentation and backup documentation on it. And you set up rules to where the brokerage firms aren't going to get sued for recommending it for as a small part of somebody's portfolio and aren't going to get sued if somebody without getting any recommendation or, or professional financial advice goes off and buys a bunch on their own and takes that risk. Because, you know, no, no, casinos don't get sued when somebody walks in with $10,000 and, and puts it on the table. Then he goes, oh, that was that guy's life savings, and you just let him blow it. Yeah, they're kind of in a, in, a, in a world where they understand, look, people are going to come in and take bad risks and make bad decisions. And to a certain extent, while it's sad, um, you know, that's the world of investments, too. People have to learn that you can't just make willy-nilly bad investments. You've got to diversify. You've got to play it long. Uh, you've got to think about the long term. You've got you to build a, a good, strong portfolio that isn't dependent on uh, one or two things working out. You know, that's, that's basically going to you know, follow the overall economy, but maybe you can outperform a little bit on, uh, on, on the upside, and maybe you can protect a little bit of risk on the downside if you have a really good financial advisor or you're, you're, you're your own professional financial advisor and you know what you're doing and you know how to manage that risk. You know, there are ways to do that. There are ways to use the, uh, the markets that we have to, to get a good return. And I think this would be a way that would increase that. I also think that it would open up structured products that would allow a lot of capital to flow from institutions to these small businesses. And that would really open up the market for entrepreneurs to gain access to capital. If you had strong structured products that were based on pools of strong interest rate loans to small and startup businesses that also had a tax incentive built in, you'd have institutions, uh, you know, all over the place, get it, you know, trying to buy into this. And you'd, you'd also have it as a, if you structured it properly, where you had the right, uh, the right risk management protocols in place. You'd also have a lot of retirees who might be able to clip a little bit better of a coupon, do it in a safe manner, and while, while helping to build the next generation of, of businesses. So there's a lot of things you can do. I'm, I'm not saying that would be their entire portfolio, but maybe 5 6 7%. You can index annuities to these pools. There's all sorts of interesting you, things you could do with structured products if you had a more vibrant market where, where uh, investors of all sizes – could come and gain access to uh, startup and small business uh, debt and equity offerings in a way that was, you know, accountable and in a way that was efficient and in a way that maybe offered a little bit of liquidity, but you understood these are small businesses that are trying to grow that liquidity three, five years down the road. If you actually had a world that preached truth, that didn't say, you know, one out of every three businesses goes out of business, you know, you know, only one out of every three businesses is still in business after the first year, or 
one out, you know, only one out of every 10 is in business after the third year, or all these little cliches that just simply aren't true. You know, about 68% of businesses three years in are still alive. You know, so yeah, you've got, you've got one out of three that after three years go out of business. And by five years, 50%, a little over 50% are still alive. So you have pretty close to 50%, five out of 10. Let's use real numbers. And let's plan risks around those real numbers. And let's understand that, yes, there's tail events. But the more vibrant of a market we have, the more of an opportunity there is for people to find ways to manage the risk around that market. And when you have ways to manage the risk around that market, three standard deviation market events that put you know, 75% of small businesses uh, that started that year out of business, and a lot of people lose money on that, you have ways to manage that risk. And you have ways that to efficiently, you know, cost efficiently, prevent yourself from losing big time on one of those events. So I, I think that, that what, we're, what we really, really need is a combination of public policy that provides a tax incentive for the private redistribution of wealth, that is, wealthy people and people of all sorts taking minority stakes in small businesses and startup businesses, getting a tax incentive to do so, and as that business grows, obviously there's going to be tax base that grows, and it pays way more than the taxes that are, are credited or deducted um, by making this investment. You know, by giving people these deductions and, and, and credits to make these investments, you're going to have much more taxes that come in a couple of years down the road. But not only are you going to have that, you're also going to have a more vibrant market for it. You're going to have incentives for entrepreneurs to go and create a very accountable market where small and startup businesses come and, and properly have the standardized paperwork to make the offering, to register quickly, make it not very expensive, and be able to attach that that uh, tax credit to it, be able to attach that tax deduction to it very easily, raise the capital, put the capital to work, hire people, go on with their idea. As they grow their business, you already have strong accountability. It'll be able to, it'll be easier for them to go back to the market. Maybe the second, you know, maybe the first round is a convertible debt. Maybe the second round is convertible preferred. Maybe the third round is, uh, you know, a, a, a pure common equity. And that's the conversion point for the other two. And, uh, you know, those are, you know, a year apart each. They're done on the same exchange. The exchange, the brokerages, they make a little bit of money off of it. People get their tax credit for it. They get to invest in the next generation of businesses. Those businesses raise the capital. They put the capital to work. The economy grows and flourishes. And it's going to be well, well worth having this market when you've got an economy that's growing at 4 or 5%, as opposed to the measly 1.1% that we got you know, in, in order to do this, we've got to make it. We've got to make it fair to the people that are participating in the market, that are providing this profession, to where they're not going to get sued all the time because a business goes out of business. Look, businesses do go out of businesses. Some succeed, some fail. It's not as outrageous a number that fail as uh, society likes to preach, as we showed you here on slide 13 in tonight's podcast. It's nowhere near those outrageous numbers, but some do. Some businesses succeed, some fail, and when you take the risk of investing in a small business, you have to understand that's why, why you should diversify. But when you're taking that risk at an early stage, yeah, it should be a small part of your portfolio. You're able to get a lot of upside down in the future. You're able to get a lot of upside down in the future, and that's the benefit because you're starting out – you're getting a lower valuation before that company enters into the hyper-growth stage. The other thing is if you open this market up to a credit you – know, not just accredited investors, and if you had a vibrant market for these types of opportunities – 
you'd have financial professionals that whether they um, whether they they specialize in that or at least they make it a part of their repertoire and put it as a part of their model um, and and take the time to really start to understand that market. Financial professionals will help their clients make those right decisions. They will. Financial professionals already have fiduciary responsibility. And, you know, if they might say, look, you should look at doing this as part of a tax plan and understand you might lose some money on it if you have this tax credit tax deduction. Um, they also might look at it and say, look, you know, if you have 10 companies, five are going to succeed, five might go out of business. And the five that, you know, you have, you, you have a finite amount of risk, the five that succeed out of the five that su- succeed, you know, three of them, you're going to get a 2x return and two of them, one, one of them, you're going to get a you know, 3x return, whatever. You know, it's you can show different models. You can model it out, and you can say this is what we're expecting out of it. There is risk involved in this, as there is with everything. That's why it's only the small part of your portfolio. You know, we're diversified, but this is something that we got to get happening. Everybody's complaining about, um, you know, the inequality, inequality, wealth inequality, income inequality. The reason there's a lot of inequality is because there's absolutely no incentive for a wealthy person to take risk investing in a small business. Um, that's just starting out uh, when you can very when it, it, a it's very difficult. There's no vibrant market. It's hard to keep them accountable. People live around the around the world. And if you're an entrepreneur, you got to go out and find the wealthy person. You got to court the wealthy people, and you got to court many many wealthy people in order to find the one that likes your idea. Well, that's not cheap and that's not easy. And if you're just some average dude or you're an average gal looking to to start a business. You come from middle-class America, or you come from even, you know, poor neighborhood in America, but you worked your ass off, and you got a little bit saved up, and you had enough to be able to go off on your own and not have to worry about a salary for a little bit. Now you got to find a wealthy person. Then you can use the internet all you want. But when it comes down to it, at the end of the day, wealthy people want to know you can go out and have a drink with them. They want to know that you can, you, you know, that they can trust you, that they can look you in your eyes. They want to shake your hand. It's not an easy thing to do if you don't come from a lot of money, and it costs a lot of money to get there. You got to constantly be going around and trying to meet with the, you know, these wealthy people and hope one finds a job. You got to figure out ways to hang out where wealthy people are. And guess what? Wealthy people don't hang out where it's cheap. They hang out places where it's pretty expensive, for the most part, you know, and at least pretty expensive for for a young entrepreneur that's just starting out. So, and if banks aren't going to do that job anymore. We've got to figure out a way to incentivize those wealthy people to seek out good ideas, and we've got to have a vibrant marketplace for that to be done, and we've got to institutionalize that marketplace in a way to where the offering documents are standardized, people know what they're getting into, they know what they're doing, and there is an incentive, a financial incentive, a tax incentive to do so. That will get this economy bumping again. That will get this economy moving really, really fast. You'll have a velocity of money. You'll have to start kicking up interest rates. And then you know what you're going to have? You're going to have banks all over starting platforms for this. They're going to start brokerage houses that will you know, really advise, look, 3 to 5%, help get this tax deduction out there. You know, And, and, and maybe the political way to do it is to, to, to not make a permanent tax deduction, make it five to seven years. You know, Seek out some best practices, emulate those best practices, be able to find you know, ways to get um, more resources to the small business owners so that you have lower failure rates. There's other ways to do this. And in a competitive world, you're probably going to actually see failure rates at the beginning increase a little bit. And then what you're going to see is you're going to see profits and uh, di- diminishing returns. The law of diminishing returns is you have more, more uh, people participating in the same industry competing for the same customers. They're going to start to have the price compete. 
And when they start to price compete, they'll also compete with innovation and new products and new, uh, you know, new services. But when they start to price compete, you're also going to have lower margins. You're going to have smaller profits. And then capital is going to be diverted away from that. It's going to be put towards even newer businesses. And if you have this perpetual cycle of new innovation, new innovation, new disruption, lower prices, more, more goods, more services, more abundance for people, more jobs available, more people consuming, more people having jobs, more people getting wage increases, guess what? That also means we can start to pay down our debt. That means we no longer have to have budget deficits every single year. We can have balanced budgets. We can have budget surpluses. We can have large budget surpluses and windfalls where we can pay whole chunks of our debt down and prepay whole chunks of our debt, and we won't have to refinance it. The other thing we can do is we can start to really fund our Social Security liabilities and our entitlements, and you know we're going to talk about that in another episode, but one of the things we've got to do to be able to do any of this, we've got to get the economy moving again. And the way you get the economy moving again is you do what we had in, throughout the 80s and into the early 90s, which is just flourishing small businesses that were able to access capital. And yeah, you had scams that went on with the, the pink sheets pushers and you know the, the, the people robbing old granny. Yeah, it's sad and it sucks. And a lot of them, you know, a lot of these regulations exist, but most business owners aren't like that. And honestly, anymore, I don't know if it was just totally, oh, I'm too young to know, and I didn't work there. I don't know if Wall Street was just really a bad place back then. Maybe it was. But, you know, I'm in the financial industry, and I know a bunch of financial advisors. And guess what? They're not bad people. They're not bad people. They're good people. They want to do best by their clients. They want to do best by their clients. And they're not going to you know, go and rip their clients off. But if you had a vibrant market where they could get good information, they knew that these securities were legitimate, that they had been vetted, that they were on a market where uh, there's transparency into, uh, into the businesses. Maybe you don't require quarterlies you know, for small businesses because that's too expensive, but maybe you require an annual. Or maybe, you, like I said, you have some sort of financial portal where shareholders can at least gain that next level, level of insight into what's going on in, in the business. Um, you know, at that early stage of a, of a small business. But we need a vibrant market. We need a vibrant market where wealthy people and non-wealthy people alike can go and find, uh, you know, strong early stage business deals, uh, you know, investment, investment opportunities in, in, in ventures that are early stage in startup and where they can put capital to risk in a way that feels safe and secure on a market that's, that, you know, they vet them and make the registration process you know, cheap and easy, and the securities uh, that are offered are somewhat standardized, um, and you have some insight into that business. People will do it. And then you slap a tax credit for, for pre-revenue and a tax deduction for post-revenue, and that accounts for the risk. And you know, maybe what you do is, is, is for those, those pre-revenue businesses, the only type of security they can offer is a convertible that pays a coupon. So that, you know, you're lowering the risk profile on it. I wouldn't be a fan of that, but, but hey, it's a step in the right direction. I'd rather prefer where investors and businesses, you know, businesses offer the type of, of uh, security that investors want to buy. And where as long as that capital is flowing to a small business or a startup that is taking that capital, putting it to work and, you know, hiring new people, you know, whether it's what I want to see is I want to see new businesses come out with new technologies, with new products, with new services. I want to see them compete against the old ones. I want to see them hire new people. I want to see them drive the cost of goods down. I want to see them drive wages up. 
by competing for the best talent. And the way that you do that is you get entrepreneurs who are out there. There are entrepreneurs out there who want capital to put to work, who they know with the right amount, they just overcame the barriers to entry that we all set upon them with our really high regulatory costs and ridiculous regulations. If we just overcame that as an entrepreneur, we would be successful. And and what we need to get there is a little bit more capital than what we foresaw because we didn't realize all these regulations were coming out. We started three or four years ago and wham, we got slapped with, with tons of uncertainty and we have no clue when's going to be implemented when or what's going to be implemented when. And it's a total mess if you're an early stage entrepreneur, especially in a highly regulated industry. And uh, that's, that's, that's my uh, weekly rant for today. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. We're going to be you know, wrapping up here in just a second. Got about four minutes left. I uh, apologize for the uh, technical error earlier on. Had a little bit of trouble with my microphone when I tried to dial in. It's just a ton of static in my headphones. So, you know, we had the, ske- the, the uh, show scheduled earlier. And uh, unfortunately, you know, I was in it, had a lot of static going on, had to unplug my, my microphone and, and try to figure out what was going on. Um, you know, so I just had to end up recreating the episode. Uh, sorry about that for all the all, all those that uh, listened into the first one I have posted and uh, are now going to check back in a little bit later. So to wrap up, I wanted to talk about something that I saw the other day that I thought was really, really funny. Um, I thought it was very creative and, and expertly uh, put together. And what it's called is LoveGov. And you could just YouTube, search YouTube, L-O-V-E-G-O-V. And it's a series about... Sh- six short videos, about five minutes each. And um, it is a satirical, you know, sort of a satirical show uh, where a girl falls in love with a guy named Gov. And Gov is, uh, you know, sort of for all intents and purposes, a government regulator, but, you know, kind of is the all-encompassing government, you know, federal regulator that, you know, he comes and points out every little thing. And it's just her life through college and, government encouraging her to do this with certain incentives or gov, not government, but gov encouraging her to do this with certain incentives or encouraging her to do that with certain incentives, like in college and going abroad and taking on all this debt. And then when she gets out starting a business and, oh yeah, you know, I love, I love small business, not as much as big business, but uh, I like small business too. And, you know, here I've got you uh, OSHA safety regulations and just kind of, it's it, but I'm, I'm not doing it justice at all. Um, you gotta, and, and maybe on the next episode, I'll play a little clip for man. Might try to reach out and get permission to do that. I think it's done by the independent independence Institute. Um, but if you go on YouTube, just type in L O V E space G O V love gov. And, uh, you'll find it. And I think that you'll really enjoy it. I think it's really well put together. It's the type of thing that we need more of. We need more, satirical, comical, culture-winning, um, culture-winning media that's funny, that's light, but that really does nail the point, point um, you know, across. And I think that these little, this little short series of videos really did. It was really, really good. Had me laughing, uh, but at the same time was a serious, uh, serious point that got across and got made. And I think it's very relatable and would be very relatable to a lot of people of all political ideologies to show how government gets involved in the market and really destroys a lot of the market incentives and, uh, you know, makes it to where people have a much harder time going about chasing their dreams and pursuing what it is that they really want to do and what they thought was their version of the American dream. 
not some Washington bureaucrats version of it. Um, again, this is Andrew Smith coming to you live from downtown LA. Uh, this was the macro view. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Tonight's episode is all about access to capital, how we're going to get it, why it's so important. And uh, talked a little bit about why, why we don't have it right now. Um, you know, if you're just tuning in now, go back and, and listen to the episode in full in about uh, 10 minutes and we're going to wrap up here. Hope you guys have a wonderful weekend. Take care. Again, this is the Macro View coming to you live from downtown LA. Go and follow us on Twitter at the Macro View. And uh, we got a Facebook page up now uh, just titled The Macro View, three separate words. Hope you guys enjoyed the podcast. Hope you'll listen in next week. Um, on next week's episode, I believe we're talking about education myths, and that's going to be really fun. And we're going to talk about how we can fix the education system from uh, you know early childhood all the way through uh, the higher education. And uh, we're going to talk about how markets are going to be the, the uh, saving grace when it comes to education. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. Take care. Have a wonderful rest of your weekend. If you missed it tonight, it'll be available on Podbean and Google Play tomorrow. And it'll be available on, on uh, Blog Talk Radio in just a little bit. Take care. Bye.